So our text is, is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. And I want to start this morning by asking you a question. What is the most valuable thing you possess? Now, men, you should have turned to your wife and said, honey, it's you. You missed your opportunity. But I want to, I'm talking about something you possess, something you own, not so much a relationship, but maybe something you would say, this is valuable. For some of you, it might be a house. Uh, others of you, it might be your car. For some of you, it might be sentimental things such as a wedding ring or maybe something somebody has given you. You know, I was channel surfing the other night, and I don't know if you've ever seen that show called Pawn Stars. It's about this pawn shop in Vegas. This, this guy by the name of Rick Harrison and his family, they run it. And people come in and they buy and sell stuff in there. And this one man, he walked in, and he was kind of a younger guy, but he had a very valuable coin. And I think it was a Liberty Silver Dollar 1922. And so the guy brings it, and, and he lays it down before Rick Harrison. And, and Rick takes one look at it, and his eyes kind of brighten up. And, and the man says, I want $20,000 for this coin. And really, to Rick's credit, Rick goes, you know, you don't realize what you have there. He says, this thing is so valuable. He says, I need to call somebody in. So he calls in one of these experts. And the expert says that this coin is worth over $100,000. And so these two start to barter. You know, they go, if you've seen the show, they, okay, I'll offer you this and that kind of thing. Well, they settled on 75000 bucks. And so this man, he had won this coin in a poker game, shows up, and he's $75,000 richer. He had no idea that he's asking for twenty grand. that this thing's worth five times that much. And I'm I'm posing this to you because I want you to realize that book that you have on your lap, the Word of God, it is the most valuable thing you possess. Do you realize that the God of the universe has communicated to us in the Word of God? His very Word are in these pages, and He's given it to us to know. This is what Paul in this passage right now is trying to get across to Timothy. Paul wants Timothy to understand that he has been given the precious word of God, the most valuable thing that we can own. Now, some people in our day and age want to do away with the word of God, but we as God's people are to take the word. It's to be in us, and we're to spread the word of God. And so this morning, we're going to learn what we're to do with the word of God. So let's read the text, 2 Timothy 1, verses 13 through 18. Paul writes, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who indwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom were Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of, of, of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. So the first thing that we should do when it comes to the truth that God has given us is we should hold on to the truth. God is calling us to hold on to the truth, to hold on to the word of God. God's people are called to glorify God. And the best way that you and I can glorify God is with God the Word of God. Now, 2 Timothy verse, chapter 1, verse 13 says again, retain the standard of sound words that you have heard from me and in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> now, I want you to remember that Paul, the apostle, he's in a prison 
Some believe it's the Mamertine prison. It's a dungeon, really. It's a very dark and lonely place. And he's writing to his friend in the faith, Timothy. And he wants Timothy to remember that he is called by God. I think Paul, at this point, he's trying to come up with a succession plan. He realizes the Emperor Nero, he's in charge. My lifespan is going to be short. And so in this letter, and we know that this is his last letter, he realizes this is it. And so he wants to spur Timothy on. And he's already encouraged Timothy to kindle afresh that that gift that God had given him of teaching and preaching to bring forward the word of God. And Paul understands that if we use the gifting that God has given us, and even if we suffer for the Lord, but we don't bring the truth, guys, it is for naught. And so right here, he is making the major point, you have been given the truth, God's word. And he wants Timothy to understand it and to really take it in. He's pressing Timothy here to stand in the truth of the gospel, to never waver from it. So he tells him right there, retain the standard of sound words on which you've heard from me. God had deposited or entrusted Paul with the gospel message. He'd given him the clear message of salvation. And Paul then spread it around. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.4. He says, but just as we've been approved by God, been entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Paul had been entrusted with the gospel message. Now, Timothy says, you're entrusted with the gospel. Now, Timothy, go spread it, go speak it. God had entrusted Paul, but also Timothy was given that same deposit. And what Paul is doing here, he's reinforcing for Timothy what he'd already spoken to him in 1 Timothy. Let me share with you what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. He says, oh, Timothy... Guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. He said, Timothy, you guard that. You guard that word. It's been entrusted to you. Now, that that word right there, retain, that's an imperative verb. That means it is a command. Paul is saying, through the Holy Spirit, through me, I'm telling you, I'm commanding you to retain the word of God. Now, retain means to hold on to, to grasp firmly, and to never let go. Timothy, don't lose this one. This is the truth. So it's not only the gospel message, but all of God's word, the whole of scripture. One writer put it like this. He said, our ultimate confidence is in Christ himself, but the truth is of great importance. It is, in fact, absolutely required for faithful living as well as for certainty of our security in Christ. If we belong to Christ, we will be secure. But if we neglect his truth or stray from his truth, our confidence in that security will wane and we will become weak and ineffective. And I fear for the church in America today because there are many churches in America today that have, if you will, drifted away from the truth, the truth of God's word. And then the people that are being taught a weak and ineffective gospel, they themselves become weak. And they no longer are sharing the truth themselves. The main message of the Bible, it teaches us who God is. It shows us his attributes. But it also teaches us the way of salvation. God created the universe. And he crowned it by forming the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And he made them in sinless perfection. But Adam and Eve, they gave in to the temptation of Satan. And they succumbed to sin. And from that sin... All of us have inherited the sin nature. 
And God should have abandoned mankind, but he did not abandon mankind. But instead, he chose a people group called Israel, and he chose to send his Messiah, Jesus Christ, through that people group. And God sent his own son to bear the awesome burden of our sin, and he paid it completely on the cross as a substitute. His death and suffering on the cross saved you from eternal torment. And in his resurrection, God demonstrated his victory over sin. And he calls people of every tribe, every nation, every tongue to trust in Christ on the cross. That truth, that sound message, that sound doctrine of the gospel, it is what has revolutionized and changed the world that we live in. And if we wander or stray and don't hold on to that truth, we are done. What he's trying to tell Timothy is, Timothy, you stand strong, Timothy. You hold on to that with all that you got. Because if you stray, you are so lost. Listen to what he told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.3. He says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine that does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ... And with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and he understands nothing. Paul wants to make sure that Timothy is absolutely secure in his understanding of the gospel message, in his understanding of the whole of scripture. And he wants to make sure that he holds on to that very firmly. And, And there's a warning here throughout the whole book of 2 Timothy. Listen to Paul's almost his final words of the book. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. And this is a warning for us, church. Paul says this, he says, For a time will come, well, they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And some will turn away their ears from the truth, and they'll turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, Timothy. Now, one commentator said this. He said, much of the professing church today is atheological. That is without any significant theological convictions. Like the world around them, many people who go by the name of Christ believe that to hold and to teach absolute doctrines is to be unloving, antagonistic, and even unchristian. But Paul will say, you're so wrong. He would say, you hold on to the truth. You hold on to the whole scripture, Timothy. And you never, never waver, never let go. That phrase right there, standard of sound words in verse 13, it carries the idea of a template or a pattern, a pattern from an architect's sketch. There was a defined pattern, a defined truth of the gospel message. And, And Paul is saying, you need to know this so well and never depart from it. Because if you don't know it, when the winds of change come, when false doctrine comes into the church, you might be swept away with it. Now, Paul doesn't expect Timothy to regurgitate what he says word for word, but he expects him to internalize the truth, to every day put in the Word of God, to know the Word of God so well that when a false doctrine comes, when a lie comes, boom, I call it the flag goes up, you recognize, whoa, that's not true, that's not real. And we are to take the Scripture and apply it to our lives. And not only is it supposed to stay here, we're then to pass it on to others, aren't we? We're to share the truth. Because Paul says, retain the sound words, which you've heard from me. Now, that's the pattern, isn't it? So we get the word of God. We hold on to it, but then we 
take it to somebody else. Paul did it. He wanted Timothy to do it. He wants us to do it as his church. But he says something here that I want us to be careful about. The way we share the truth matters. So it's not only are we to know the truth and know it well, not only are we to know the breadth of the Bible, but also the gospel message. But the way that we bring that to others, it really matters to God. This is why he says, in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Guys, we're to present and defend the truth of God's word first in faith. That means we understand our trust is in the very validity and the truth of the Bible. This is God's word. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It has authority. We depend on it. We believe it by faith. We know it. And when we have that, it is powerful to change lives. But not only that, in love, we're to present it. That means we're to have the heart and compassion of Christ, that we're to bring this message to others with the love of Christ, that it would open a door for us. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 4, to present the truth, what? In love, in love. And so Paul is not only saying, hey, hold on to the truth, know this truth, but Timothy, the way you share this truth, it matters to God. Have the theology, but almost as important as having theology is how you present that theology. Your attitude matters to God. Now, about my third year of seminary, I was going to, to Talbot Seminary, which is the, the seminary on the, on the campus of Biola up in La Mirada. And kind of my pattern that particular year, I was in my second year in Greek, one of the hardest classes I had. And every week they'd have an assignment. So what I would do, I'd come into the office for a few hours and then I'd go up to La Mirada for the rest of the day and kind of finish out the day there. And it was about halfway through the semester, and I was in the office here at church, and all of a sudden I realized, I went, oh, I forgot my assignment. So I was late already, and so I had to run home, and I got home, and I run in the house, and I go upstairs, and, and there it is right there, and I pick it up, and I'm coming down the stairs, and all of a sudden there's a knock on the door. And literally as I get to the door, I open it up, and there's a sweet elderly woman there. She's got a Bible in her hand, and... And she looks at me and she said, would you like to know more about God? And I'm like, oh. And all of a sudden she reaches in her little bag and she hands me a little magazine. And it's called The Watchtower. She was a Jehovah's Witness. And I looked at it and I looked at her and I said, oh, I thought you were from a real church. Yeah. And so she looked at me and she says, well, you don't know how to show the love of Jesus very well, do you? And she turned around and she walked away. She was right. She was right. I had sound doctrine. I knew the truth. I even knew the gospel message well. But the way that I presented myself to her was all wrong. I did not present the love of Christ to her, and I lost that opportunity. God would say to you, Paul would say to you, not only is the truth important, but the way that you present the truth is important. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, set apart Christ as Lord and always be ready to give the truth that lies within us with gentleness and respect. That's what matters. First thing, hold on to the truth. Second thing, guard. Guard the truth. We are to be guardians of the truth, guardians of the word of God. And God's truth is the most valuable thing that you possess. Look at verse 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Paul's saying, hey, 
Timothy, not only are you to hold on to this truth, never waver from it, never change it, don't alter it, but Timothy, I want you to guard. Now, guard itself is also a command. It's an imperative verb. This, I'm commanding you, Timothy, to guard this. Now, I think what Paul is doing here, he's kind of banking off what he just said in verse 12. Look right above verse 13. He says, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know what I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. He's saying, hey, the salvation that I have, I know that God is going to guard it. In the same way, what God has entrusted to you, Timothy, you guard it also. God has given us such a great gift in the Word of God. And I really, really hope that by the end of this message, you understand how valuable that this gift is. It is life to us. It will keep your soul healthy. It will keep you solidly grounded in Christ the definition of guard is to watch over, to keep, to protect what has been entrusted to our care. So when it comes to the truth of God's message found in Scripture, we're not only called to hold it, but we're called to guard it. God wants us to carefully watch over, to protect the truth, to never waver. And to be a true Christian is to be a guardian of the Word of God, to defend it to our dying breath. Now, I was doing research on this. I, I came across something that John MacArthur said. There were six things that he said that if somebody alters or waters down God's word, it can have these kind of effects on the people in the church. So let me share those with you. There's six. First, he says, to water down the message or to change the word of God, it usurps the authority of God over the soul. Whenever anything is substituted for sound preaching of the word of God, God's authority is usurped. And the person who does that, they'll be held account. But the person also who hears the false message, they will be harmed and they will be weakened because they're not getting the full message and the truth of God's word. So it usurps the authority of God. Second thing, to alter the truth removes the lordship of Christ from his church. When Jesus Christ exalted himself among the people, his power was manifest in the church and when the word of God is compromised, when it's weakened, when it's watered down to try to appease our culture, when it's minimized, the true power of the gospel is lost. And when the true power of the gospel is lost, what a church has to do, then it has to try to manufacture excitement, doesn't it? You've got to make everything a show, bright lights, fancy music, whatever. And it's not the power of the word that matters, but it's the show that becomes important. Third thing, a watered-down message breeds a congregation that is weak and indifferent to the glory of God. They become weak and indifferent to the glory of God. A weak teaching, it fosters people who are consumed with their own self-well-being. When you tell people that the church's primary ministry job is to fix them and whatever is wrong in their life, to kind of meet their felt needs, how to help them to cope with the daily stuff, their disappointments, the message that you're sending is that their problems are more important than the glory of God and the glory of Christ and his message. That is not the gospel message. The true gospel message is to glorify God. It is not to glorify man and to help him find comfort. Fourth thing, a watered-down word robs people of their only true source of help. People who sit under artificial preaching become dependent on the cleverness and creativity of the pastor, and they become confused because they no longer have interest in the Bible because it no longer cultivates that interest, they're wowed by the creativity, they're wowed by the show, and everything spiritual becomes about what they feel, not about truth. Careful. 
A watered-down verb, it robs people of the only true source of help. Fifth thing, weak teaching encourages people to become indifferent to the Word of God and divine authority. People will become indifferent to the Word of God, and no longer does it have the authority of God's Word. In a church where the preaching of Scripture is neglected, it becomes impossible to get people to submit to the authority of God. If the preacher is always aiming at people's self-needs, how to fix people, then the platform that he's preaching from, you can't confront a person when they sin. So a man could come in and say, I want to divorce my wife for no reason. And the man will say, well, I understand what I feel, and I feel like I no longer want to be with her. And when you come to them with the word of God, they just disregard it because to them it has no authority. You need straight preaching, the full word of God's counsel. And finally, weak teaching and preaching hinders the work of the Holy Spirit. The main instrument that the Spirit of God uses is the Word of God. And He brings the Word of God in power to impact people in their hearts and in their lives. It is the Word of God that brings people to salvation. And it is the Word of God that helps us to grow in sanctification. And if somebody gets away from the sound teaching of God's Word, they no longer have the backing and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you guard this treasure that has been entrusted to you, and you guard it with your very life, Timothy. But he's not to guard it under his own strength. If you look there, he's to guard it under the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us there in verse 14. So not only has God given us this truth, not only has he brought to us and explained it to us and helped us to learn it through the Holy Spirit, but now he gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to guard it, to hold on to it, to protect it. And he wants us to be dependent on him and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you know Jesus Christ, you have been given the Holy Spirit a promise. And he dwells within you. Jesus said this in John 14, 16, and 17. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Because it does not see him or know him, but you know him. Because he abides with you, and he is in you. If you're a believer, you've been given this great helper, the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit will help you to not only understand and know the Word, but it'll also help you to keep the Word. One evidence that a person has the Holy Spirit is that they'll keep the Word. They'll guard it. It becomes very precious to a believer. Jesus put it this way in John 14, 23 and 24. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep, which also means guard my Word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we'll make our abode with him. He who does not love me, he does not keep my word. Those who love Christ keep his word. Those who know, know Christ, this becomes their most valuable possession. And the power to guard the truth and to preach the truth is in the work of the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul says in, in 2 Thessalonians 1.5 this, he says, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and full conviction. So this gospel message, the truth of God's word, it is a treasure. It is something that I hope you understand that God gave to us and it is very, very valuable. And there have been so many saints before us who have given their very lives to entrust that we here this morning have this valuable Word of God. And this very Word of God that we're called to watch over when we do that, it then watches over us, doesn't it? And this very Word of God that we've been called to guard, 
it also will guard you in Christ Jesus. But if you neglect it, there's a very high price that you're going to end up paying for that. If you want to be fruitful in this life, you need to let the word of God dwell in you richly. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And Psalm 119.9 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to the word of God. Well, how do we do that? Well, Paul tells us in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We are called by God to put in the word of God. I hope you understand that a lot of people think that the way the Holy Spirit works, he kind of supernaturally, mystically puts the word of God in you. It doesn't work like that. God calls us to do the work, study, know the word. And then what happens? Ah, now the Holy Spirit comes and he takes within us and he uses it. I want to share with you some things that are unhelpful in trying to take in the word of God. So it's kind of the reverse. It's unhelpful. These approaches will guarantee that you're not guarding the truth. The first one's called the pinball approach, the pinball approach. Lacking a reference or any guidance on what to read, I read whatever the scripture verse happens to land on, and then I kind of ricochet, and I go to the next one, to the next. The pinball approach gives no thought to the culture, the history, the authorship. You don't really need to know the original ten of the message. There's also one called the magic eight ball approach. You guys remember the magic eight ball? Magic eight ball, you, you have a problem, you shake it, you turn it over, and it kind of gives you kind of a mystical kind of thing. Well, some people look at the Bible that way. They hope that it's magical. And so I have a problem. They open it up. Right? Magic eight ball. That doesn't work. That's not what God's calling us to do. Some take the personal shopper approach when it comes to the Word of God. They don't actually study the Bible. Rather, they kind of shop around for Bible teachers. Teachers that kind of suit their fancies. Teachers that they kind of like to listen to for a while. And I call them salad bar Christianity. Well, this church has certain croutons I like, and this church over here has certain types of lettuce and other things that I like, but they never plant in a church. They never become part of a fellowship, and they never study the Word of God for themselves. Salad bar, personal shopper approach. The last one is called the Jack Spratt approach. That's the English nursery rhyme. The character Jack Spratt, he refused uh, to eat fat. Um, We take this approach when we're picky eaters. We say, well, I I trust this part of the Word of God, uh, but I don't really want to answer to that part of the word of God. So I'm only going to choose that I believe this, but not that. But the counsel is that, is that all scripture is God-breathed, and we're to take it in. And the reason we make such a big deal here at Calvary Chapel about knowing the word of God is this will, is what will sustain you and keep you healthy all the way to the end of your life. And I'm calling on you to work and to pray and to be diligent in knowing the word of God that you would put that word in you. So I have an approach. I think it's a better approach. Read the word. Read the word. Make it a part of your diet every day. And don't only read the word, hear the word. Come regularly to church, hear sound preaching. And not only that, study the word. Go deeper. That's why we do home fellowships, so you'll get deeper into the word of God in community. Also, memorize the word. Learn it by rote. Take a verse, study it, learn it, make it part of you, and then meditate. Begin to think upon it, chew upon it. And now that you got it, apply it. Now that you know it, you can apply it to what you need. And this is how it works. Now that it's in, now you're usable. 
This is what Jesus said in John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And he'll bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Have you seen that? You go to talk to somebody and you put the word of God, or maybe even years past, and all of a sudden in that conversation, there it is. How's it get there? The Holy Spirit. How to get there originally? You put it there, working together with God. Two things, hold the truth and guard the truth. The last one is display the truth. Display the truth. The word of God transforms a person, but there will be evidence that that life has been transformed. And it will be displayed for the whole world to see. This is verses 15 through 18. It says, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me, and he found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Have you ever put your trust in someone and they kind of backstabbed you and kind of deserted you? Well, this is what Paul is experiencing. He had a number of people that he was serving with, and suddenly when he went into prison, they, they were out of there. You know, I read an ancient fable that was entitled The Two Travelers and the Bear. It describes a fearsome large bear and two travelers that are confronted by this bear. Well, one of the travelers, in great fear, he shimmies up a pole and, and he kind of leaves his friend hanging. Well, the other one has no chance to go anywhere. He remembered that bears often lose interest in dead people, so he fell to the ground. He kind of feigned death. And the bear it came alongside him. It kind of nuzzled him and it sniffed at his face and his ears. And thinking that the man was dead, the beast ambled away. And when the bear was long gone, the man who had gone up the pole, he climbed down and he asked his friend, I mean, what the bear whispered to you? Because I, he said something. I noticed that his, his mouth was a real long time at your ear. And, and the person, as he stood brushing himself off in the dust, he said, it's no secret what he told me. What he said is that I should be careful in keeping company with those who when danger arises, they leave their friends and lurch. This is exactly what Paul, if he read that, he'd probably laugh. Because that's what happened to him. When danger came, when difficulty hit, his friends left him in the lurch. They left him alone. He felt deserted. This is why he says right there in verse 15 to Timothy, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Now, Timothy was aware of it because he's in the church in Ephesus, and Ephesus was a church within Asia in a Roman colony. And so already he knew that these people had done that. But I think what we see right here, one thing about Paul that I think is interesting and I think is true, is that Paul, although he was a tough guy, right, he had a lot of suffering, he had a big heart for friendship. And he had a number of people that he served alongside, and they were part of his life. That's what the Christian life is supposed to be like. And when you kind of look at kind of an expose of Paul's life, you can just kind of go down the row. There was John Mark, who who at one time had an, an issue, but later on it says that John Mark was valuable to him. There was Silas, he traveled with Paul all along his second missionary journeys. There was Onesimus, he was the fugitive slave that Paul converted in Rome, and and he became a friend of Paul's. There was Epaphroditus, he was the pastor at the church in in Philippi. You have Priscilla and Aquila, you have all these different people, and of course we have Timothy right here. So Paul, I think what we're seeing right here, this this is the heart of Paul. Guys, he's depressed, he's lonely, 
He's stuck in this prison cell. All these people have left him. I think he feels the loneliness that he had opened his heart to these people. He had poured out ministry and life into these people. And what did they do? They deserted him at the first sign of danger. That's why he says, all who were in Asia had deserted me. Was it everyone? No. I mean, you know, Timothy's still there. And there were probably, you know, we know that Luke in chapter 4, he's there. But to Paul, you ever been there? Lord, I'm alone. I'm alone, Lord. I feel like there's no one who understands me. I feel like there's no one who cares. So he'd been de- he's been deserted by a substantial group of people. And I think this kind of betrayal, it, it hurt Paul. So I think the instigators are these two that he mentions, Phygelus and Hermogenes. I think they might have been the instigators that kind of caused people to scatter. And they probably scattered at the point where Paul was taken and actually put into jail at his arrest. And so Paul is this passionate lover of people. He's a passionate lover of the church. And so what that shows me is that he's willing to be vulnerable, isn't he? He's willing to have actual relationships with people, actually get to know them, and actually set himself up for a fall. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to actually live out the Christian life in relationship. But C.S. Lewis says this. He says that to love at all is to be vulnerable, but if you don't want to get hurt, do not give yourself to anyone, even a cat. Some people live like that. That's not what the Scripture teaches. The Bible would say, no, live out your life, but sometimes... When you are displaying the truth, living out the truth, sometimes people are going to hurt you. Sometimes people are going to desert you. And sometimes I think in those difficult times, we just need to remember the words of our Lord that He will never leave you. He will never desert you. So you have this negative example with those two people, Phygelus and Hermogenes. But now what what Paul does in this section, he gives us a positive example in Anisiphorus. And he is an example of courage. Onesiphorus showed great courage. Look at verses 16 through 18. It says, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me, and I was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day and know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. So Onesiphorus, he wasn't afraid to seek out Paul and find him in jail. And I kind of thought of that verse in in Matthew 5 where where Jesus says, let your light so shine before the world, a city on a hill, and let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and and glorify our Father in heaven. That is Anisiphorus. He was a man that, that had courage. He was a man that knew there was trouble. He knew it could be a problem, but I think he has theological understanding of the sovereignty of God and God working to protecting his own. Do you understand that if God calls you to a task, you're virtually, un- you're, you're, you are protected by the very hand of God. And so if he calls you to do something, he will take care of you. Job says that since our days are numbered, the numbers of our months are with him, and the days of our limits are set so that we cannot pass. Literally, God has you in the palm of his hand. I think Onesiphorus is that kind of a man. He trusted God to such a depth. And he was willing to, to have courage and to find Paul. And you're saying, well, why does he need courage? Because you need to understand Rome. If you were a criminal in jail and somebody comes along to help them, oftentimes they would put their accomplices in jail also. And so when Paul went to jail, everybody scattered, but Onesiphorus, he sought him out. 
And when he sought him out, it says that he eagerly searched. And when he found him, it says that he refreshed him, that he refreshed Paul. Most of the scholars I read think that the timing of this was probably sometime around when the emperor Nero, he set Rome ablaze. And the reason Nero did that is he wanted to rebuild the city for his own glory. But when he did it, he had a backlash from the people. They got upset because over a third of Rome burned. A number of people died. And the people started to turn on Nero. So what Nero did is he said Christians did it. And so it was very dangerous to be a Christian in Rome at that time. But that did not stop Onesiphorus. He had courage. He searched for Paul. And when he found Paul, what it says here, it says that he refreshed him in verse 16. Now, I think that means that maybe he brought him food and maybe drink, that kind of thing. But I think even more so, he refreshed him spiritually. He poured out his life. I mean, here's the great apostle, right? But he looked at him as ministry. So Nisiphorus saw that this is a man who's lonely. This is a man who's been deserted. I'm going to go to him and I'm going to bless him. Now, I spend a lot of my time as a pastor ministering to people. But I can tell you also, many of you have ministered to me. And I've seen them minister to Pastor Neil and and to Pastor Ryan. Every once in a while, somebody will send me a card, and it's just a card to say, hey, praying for you, love you, that kind of thing. Every once in a while, I'll get emails from people saying, we're praying for you this week, and things like that. A number of ways people have walked up to me here and have encouraged me. What is that? That's refreshing to my soul. And that's exactly what Anisiphorus is doing here. He's, he's refreshing Paul. And so with that kind of refreshment in mind, Paul begins to write a prayer of blessing for Anisiphorus. In verses 16 and 18, he asked that God would grant him mercy. Now, some of the commentators think that when Paul wrote this, maybe Onesiphorus had already died because it says that he's praying for his household twice, but it's unclear. Nobody really knows. I I think there's there's a bigger point here. The main idea here is that Onesiphorus showed courage, not shame. He showed faith, not fear. And he understood that one day, He would be rewarded for what he did for Paul because it was as if he actually did it for the Lord himself, wasn't it? I'd like you to see this in Scripture because this is so important for you. Turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 25. Keep your finger there and go over to Matthew, chapter 25. When you serve the Lord, we're going to be in verse 31, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When you serve the Lord by serving some of his people to encourage them, you are, in effect, actually encouraging the Lord and blessing the Lord. Look at Matthew 25, verses 31 through 40. He said, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you, in, and you visited me. I was in prison, here it is, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And, and when did we see you a stranger or invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, 
even to the least of them, you did it for me. You guys get it? When you pour out your life into a fellow brother and sister, and you bless them, and you encourage them, you refresh them, you are blessing our Lord. And it is a, such an encouragement to him when you do that. And so what Paul does kind of in closing with this idea is, Paul is using Onesiphorus as an example for Timothy. Paul is saying, don't be like those guys, Phygelus and Hermogenes, be like him. He is the example for you. And the reason I think that is because at the end of this book, Paul makes a plea to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, he says, make every effort to come to me soon. And then he says in verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak, which I left at Troas and Carpus, and the books, especially the apartments. And in verse 21, he says, make every effort to come before winter. He's saying, Timothy, do not be afraid. Timothy, you be that kind of person. I need refreshment from you, brother. Come. I started to think of people that are an example to me of this kind of a person like an Onisiphorus. And I thought of a pastor that Pastor Neil and I met in Thailand by the name of Arthur, Pastor Arthur. That was about 10 years ago we went to Thailand. And, and he was a very humble man. If you met him, he just seemed like the humblest guy you'd ever meet. But regularly, he was, he was kind of stuck in, in this refugee, pan, refugee camp on, on the Thai border of, of Burma and Thailand. And so in the refugee camp, it was safe, but he would regularly sneak out. He'd go across into Burma, and he would rescue children from being slaves or sold into the sex trade, and, and he'd bring them back. And so he had an orphanage going there. I don't remember how many. It was something like 70 or 80 kids. As a matter of fact, when we were staying there, there was some 15 or 20 kids just kind of laying, sleeping in his own hut. He's that kind of person. He, he, he blessed others. He, he, he helped others. That was a, an expression of his, him displaying the truth, displaying his faith. He lived it out. I think of people in our own church. I, I think of Dean West. You guys know Dean. He's got the nice handlebar mustache. You don't know this, but Dean regularly goes into hospitals around here and doing what? Praying for the people that are sick. Praying for the people that need to be encouraged. There are so many of you that are like an Anisiphorus, and I'm grateful for you. Three things we've seen, hold on to the truth, guard the truth, and display it for all to see. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Well, Father, we give you our hearts right now, Lord, and we thank you for your work. As Paul just plainly spells out his heart before us and how valuable the word of God is, and we thank you for the word, Lord. Let the truth dwell within us, Lord, richly, I pray. And I pray that you would help us to honor you in all ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I please have you stand with me?